Have you ever noticed that I start each episode with a question that begins with how might we? Okay, so that comes from Les Macbeth, who I am so excited to have on the show today. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. Okay, so Les Macbeth did not invent the how might we structure of questioning. That comes from design thinking, which Les also did not invent, to be perfectly honest. But she did introduce it to me and the rest of the Cohort 21 community. Today on the show, I interview this rock star of a human who is the Director of Professional Development at Future Design School. She will get into the nitty gritty of what she does and how it's not actually a school per se, but if you don't already know her, Les Macbeth is a phenomenally interesting educator. She shifted from working in New York City on juicy urban design problems to a classroom teaching role in Toronto, and now towards inspiring countless educators and schools on using design thinking in education. In our conversation, we discuss the role that design thinking, empathy, and creativity can play in helping schools improve and student learning flourish. Oh, and playgrounds full of knives also make an appearance, so you'll want to keep listening to find out what that has to do with education. This is my conversation with Les Macbeth. Les Macbeth, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's such a pleasure to have an hour or so to just talk with you about things that I want to talk to you about. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you for an hour. <laughs> I know we're usually like in the space of other things happening or we're on like a joint call with a bunch of other people. So it's rare to get to have like a whole uninterrupted conversation with you. I'm really excited. Let's just start by you introducing yourself, telling everyone who you are, where you're from and what you do. Um, yeah, so my name is Les Macbeth or Leslie Macbeth. Um, I kind of go by either, which is weird, but um, I uh, am from, I live in Toronto right now. I'm originally from a small town in southwestern Ontario, and I am the director of professional development for Future Design School, which is an organization based in Toronto, but we work with schools all over North America. I feel like you should name the small town that you're part of because everyone who's from a small town in Ontario is like, maybe she's from my small town. Yeah. Um, I'm from a small town called Point Edward, Ontario, um, which is near Sarnia, but um, if my parents ever heard me say that I was from Sarnia, I would get um, reprimanded actually for that. So I'm, I'm very much a proud Point Edward, and, or what we used to call ourselves Point Girls when we were growing up. Point Girls. It's lovely. Yeah. Uh, I like starting with the same question in the last couple of shows. So can you tell everyone what school was like for you as a young person when you were growing up? Yeah, it's actually kind of a great segue from being from Point Edward, um, because Point Edward's a small town. Uh, there was there were fourteen people in my grade. Uh, fourteen. Fourteen from kindergarten to grade eight. There was I only knew the same fourteen people. Basically. Nobody new joined your class. We occasionally had a new one join, and like someone else might leave. But for the most part, there was like a core of fourteen kids that were part of our grade. I think we were nine girls and five boys. Um, and I could name them all right now still. <laughs> uh, and so school was like a, it was a very like community oriented thing for me growing up, I think, because we were in a small community. We had the whole school was like a hundred and something people from kindergarten to grade eight. Um, parental involvement was really high. We did like the teachers that we had, my grade one and two teachers were 
incredible. They were doing things that like now people are saying this is so innovative and progressive. And back then, like Mrs. Moore and Mrs. Hinch were just like, this is how school should be. And everything was project-based and play-based and, um, you know, a lot of outdoor education stuff happening in this little town in Point Edward. Like it was really, it was a really good experience for me through that elementary school experience. And well, high school too. I went, I got bused to the next town over to go to high school. Um, and I was like that, that, uh, rah, rah, I love school kind of person. <laughs> Not that I love school, but I love the school community. Like class was sort of a thing that happened in between all the other social stuff around school. Um, but I, I traditionally, like I did pretty well in school. I didn't, I didn't have to work very hard and I didn't have to put a lot of effort in to be able to like do really well in all my classes so I could spend more time on the other stuff that I liked, which was more the community stuff around school. So mm, were you in student leadership as a young person in your high school? I could totally see you running the school. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I was our, my final year, I was our class president and like all the other, years. I was in, I was on every sports team. I was in like every club I, I would get, you know, I would get disappointed if I was told I couldn't do too many things like, Oh, you're not allowed to be on two sports teams in the same season. I was like, what do you mean? I want to do it all. It kind of, kind of sounds like your life now, actually, where you're involved in so many different things. You have like such a deep breadth of interests. Like it actually doesn't surprise me at all hearing about that background. I have heard little snippets about your life as we've gotten to know each other over the years. And I'm obsessed with your life story. Like there's so many little points where I'm like, Oh, I wish I could have, experience that or I wish I could have known you at that time. Um, tell everyone about your journey getting into teaching because I think you have a really unique uh, entry point into the classroom. Yeah I guess how far back do you want me to go is the question. <laughs> um, like I guess I came out of high school being a person who really loved school and I loved all of the you know I was really had really great teachers who had like encouraged me to get involved in all those extracurricular things and do all all the things that I was doing. Um, so I actually originally I had left high school thinking that I would had wanted to be a teacher. That was sort of my original career path that I had imagined for myself. And then I got to university and like all these new doors opened up, like going from a small town where I knew basically the same 14 people most of my life um, to, to moving to a bigger city and seeing all these different things that I could do with my life was really um, eye-opening. And so I ended up after university, I went off to Switzerland uh, for a year and worked for a human rights organization at the UN. Um, that was actually run by Franciscan friars and nuns, which is like <laughs> another random tidbit. You'll hear me say things that are like when I used to live in a convent. And what? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Like when I hear snippets <laughs> of your life, I'm like, oh my gosh, you're the coolest person I know. <laughs> well, thanks. I don't know if living in a convent is actually that cool, but <laughs> it is in the past. I think yeah. you're actively doing it. Perhaps you weren't that cool, but to look yeah. back, you're like, whoa, that's neat that you did that. Um, so that was that was a really um, a really interesting experience. I like I learned a lot about the world and about human rights. I met people from like every country you can imagine. Like Geneva is such an international place, and um, and working in human rights with these people who had you know the Franciscans dedicate themselves to living in poverty with people around the world. So you meet people that are just living in like incredibly challenging positions, and you just see the resilience and the fortitude that people had for helping other people. It was it was pretty inspiring work. Um, and then that job actually transferred me to New York. So I lived in New York city for the next few years after that. Um, and I stayed with them for another year in New York where that was when I was living in a convent in Spanish Harlem. <laughs> and, uh, uh, 
that again, like another new experience. Um, I've always just been like obsessed with learning, I think. So every time there was something new that caught my interest, I just like would dive into it a hundred percent. So for like two years, I like lived and breathed human rights. And that was sort of what I was into. And then I moved to New York and became sort of obsessed with with cities and with mm. urban planning and with how cities are designed and how they're managed and how do you create a space like New York City that is so complex and yet somehow works um, with all these different people living in close proximity to each other. And it kind of became a bit of an obsession. And I um, started working then in, that was when I started first started working in design. So I worked for a company called the Design Trust for Public Space. Um, and we were a small advocacy nonprofit that did um, a lot of everything we did was project-based. So they're all projects around how can we make the city better um, mm -hmm. from, the, from the perspective of the public built environment. But it ranged from like, we saw the public built environment very broadly. So it could be like, how do we write new guidelines for sustainable park development to create these ecosystems in our parks? And to like, how do we build the High Line, which was like mm. is a, a big park in, in New York City that the Design Trust uh, originally wrote the feasibility study for. Um, to like, how does our taxi system work and how can we make that more sustainable? But it was all from a design-based approach. So everything was around how do we engage the users? How do we understand the needs of people? And then how do we create solutions that will um, both meet the needs of the people in the community and work within this like super complicated system of New York City? So we always partnered with city organizations who would actually be responsible for implementing whatever the community had sort of indicated that they wanted. Um, and that was really cool and really, that's like really where I fell in love with design um, as a way to engage people in um, solving really complicated problems. And I think it was really eye-opening, like we were working with agencies like the Taxi and Limousine Commission, which is this like very highly regulated, like imagine like the oldest school thing in New York City, <laughs> like taxis, you know, like these guys who drive taxis and own taxis and regulate taxis. And we brought in users and we're like, let's do a design charrette together. And it was amazing. Like the, the, the people who drove taxis and the people who owned taxis and the people who regulated taxis and the people who rode in taxis had never all got together in the same room and said, let's discuss what the challenges are. And like mm -hmm. just seeing how that user centered approach of like understanding the needs of people can really result in really um, great solutions happening was sort of how I fell in love with design back then. And then that was sort of what led me to teaching eventually because I did a project with an organization in Brooklyn called the Center for Urban Pedagogy. Uh, and they're an amazing organization. If you're listening to this, look them up. Um, their website is called welcometocup.org, um, Cup for Center for Urban Pedagogy. Uh, and they are this fantastic nonprofit organization that's based out of Brooklyn that does um, public education around demystifying public policy. So they're trying to make the city more accessible and more democratic for people mm. uh, through education. So they do adult education programs and then they also do youth education programs that are all about helping people to understand how the city works and how they can engage and be a more active participant in that sort of democratic process of living in a city. And so everything from like, how does rent control work to what are the guidelines for being a street vendor in New York City and how do you avoid being arrested for selling stuff on the street? Like all these things that are really interesting little pieces. And so we did a project with them where we brought a bunch of ninth graders um, into a project that we were working on in Grand Army Plaza. Um, and for me, it was really cool to see how the kids felt so much ownership over this space. 
and we were talking about a big project that would design like the actual infrastructure of this huge public plaza. Um, and when we thought about sort of who is going to be like the user of it eventually, it was like by the time these, these things take like 10, 12, 15 years to go from like an idea to actually being built. So we were like, the people that are going to be using this space are the kids who live in this community now. They're likely the ones who are going to be here using it the most. And they also were the kids that knew the space the most. Like they were that you know, like after school, they would go and hang out by the fountain and the plaza, or like they'd go to the public library across the street to do homework. And so they knew this space inside and out. And it was so, no one had ever really asked them, like, mm -hmm. what do you think about this space and how can you change it? And why is this valuable or important to you? And, and that was like so empowering for those kids, I think. And so that was sort of, after doing that project is when I started looking into getting my teaching degree. And, that's what led me to quit my job in New York and go back to Oise and become a teacher. And everyone in New York City thought I was insane, you know? I'm like working with all these architects and designers. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I'm leaving because I'm going to go and become a teacher. And they're like, you're going to do what? <laughs> what is wrong with you? Are you insane? And but I'm, I've never looked back. It was the best decision I ever made. So, why do you think they thought you were insane for going into teaching? Oh, wow. That's like a, in the, I think it's, it's a very different question in the United States than it is in Canada. For sure. Um, like, cause teaching, I think in the U S um, has a very different sort of public um, opinion on like what a teacher is and um, that it's not as, as valued or as respected, I think as a profession as it should be. Um, as, and they're not paid as much as teachers. Yeah, are in like Canada. The, the salaries are lower. They work in like, well, all teachers work in like insane conditions, you know, like who, any other person who works in any other job who would come and be a teacher for like a week would probably leave at the end of the week and be like, you people are crazy. I'm going back to my job where I can sit at my desk and not be surrounded by like people who need you all the time. <laughs> and so I think that most people just thought that, you know, I had a pretty good gig in New York. Like, why would I give that up to go and do this other thing that in their eyes, they didn't see as like as respectable as a profession, which I would argue that um, most of those people wouldn't survive for a week in a classroom. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, I think it was just a public opinion thing. Um, but I found like, and, and I knew coming from my own experience in school, I had such respect and valued my teachers. Um, and I found that I grew up in a community that, that did value education and like that valued teachers as, as, a, as an important role in kids' lives. And so I think that I sort of had that viewpoint as opposed to this other viewpoint of like, why would you ever do that? <laughs> but it sounds like you were working with young people and making kind of change with young people at the center of those projects. What could you get from teaching or maybe what did you think you would be able to get from teaching that you couldn't have gotten in that kind of role in New York City? No, that's a good question. Um, I think that one of the things was that that was the only project that we'd done that had involved the young people. Most of the other projects we were in the engaging community members, but not so much the youth. And I feel like I could have stayed there and, and thought about how do I engage young people more in this work or like, you know, gone and worked for something like the Center for Urban Pedagogy. Um, but I also really loved the idea of being in a school community. That was mm. one of the things that I think drew me towards a school. Like I was working for this small organization and we were like five full-time people and we hired fellows and things. And I was also very much, um, I didn't feel like I had a level of expertise in, in that, in the area of education. And I was curious. It's kind of like that, like what I was saying earlier, where I get curious about something and then I just kind of like 
go all in on that thing. And so it was like, I didn't want to do education as like a part-time thing. I was like, I just want to go all in and see what this is like. And so. And that's something I've always admired about you, that you're not afraid of taking big risks. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. But how do you take some of these ideas that you've been working on with your design work in New York City with these architects and big thinkers? How do you bring that into your life as a teacher in the classroom? What does that look like in your practice? Yeah, I was really I was really fortunate um, because I landed at a school that was very much in line with my vision for education, which was like all about um, sort of tearing down the classroom walls and getting kids out into the city and finding out like finding real problems. And so I think because I didn't come from a traditional sort of pathway of like into education, I didn't have any like preconceived ideas about what a like a, how a classroom should be run. I sort of came in with this I, this very different idea about what a classroom should be run. And it never really occurred to me until I was several years in that like what I was doing was different than what other people were doing. I was just well, like- Your background was different too. Like you're describing your primary teachers that they were doing all these wonderfully innovative things. When you draw on your background as a student, you're going to come up with these really yeah. rich, powerful, playful moments. So that does not surprise me. Yeah. And I'm not really a rule follower, so- <laughs> Things like curriculum, I'm like, okay, cool, I'm going to cover this curriculum, but I'm not going to cover it in a way that's like, you know, check, 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 check. I was more like, well, I like this piece of the curriculum, and I have this idea for this thing that I saw, you know, a newspaper article about this new development happening down the street. So I'd be like, how can I figure out a way to make that curriculum fit into this cool thing that I want to do? So I often did a lot of like, what we call at Future Design School, like backing into the curriculum, like (laughs) Or saying, like, how do we help students to uncover the curriculum rather than think about how we're going to cover the curriculum, right? So letting the students take the lead on a lot of those things. And then I found that my job was more like, how do I orchestrate this? Like, I kind of feel it felt like a, a bit of like a ringmaster at a circus, you know? Like, how do I orchestrate this experience so that by the end of it, I can say, yes, I've covered all those things that this document says that I need to do, but I've done it in a way that is not maybe what, will be a traditional way of doing it. So for me, bringing all that back into the classroom really was about getting the kids out in the city and Mm. saying like, the city is like the richest learning environment that you can imagine. Like you can learn every subject from just like walking down the street in the city and making observations and asking questions. Like, why is this happening? Or um, how come that's happening there? Or I wonder what's happening over here and how is that building being built? Like you can get into math and science and engineering and like all the different subjects just by walking around your neighborhood. So So you spend how many years in the classroom? Like when you first land a position to when you transition again, how many years were you there? I was there for six years, not including my my teacher's college. So seven years from the time I moved to Toronto to the time that I left the classroom. And you landed this amazing dream role with Future Design School. Uh, It's so perfect for you. And you'll tell us a little bit more about that. But talk about the transition away from the classroom. Because I think a lot of teachers are curious about what life post-classroom might look like, certainly around report cards. I hear a lot more of my friends <laughs> saying like, what else is there outside of this? But you actually did a really smooth transition. What was scary? What was exciting? What was challenging? I mean, I part of me feels like maybe nothing was scary because you were so used to like just jumping from big thing to big thing. But 
what was it like for you? Yeah, I think for me, it was mostly exciting um, because I met um, the, the founder of Future Design School. Um, her name's Sarah Prevett. Uh, and she and uh, our colleague Sandra, uh, Sandra Nagy, had this idea of like, we want to transform school. We want, we want to make school into a place that's developing these like entrepreneurial ideas and young people. And how do we help them to be problem solvers who are going after and tackling real challenges out in the world? And, um, and when I met them, it was just so in line with what everything I dreamed about in terms of what school could be. And so it didn't seem scary or challenging at all because it just seemed like too big of an opportunity to possibly pass up on in terms of being able to, to build something with like-minded people that was going to have an impact on lots of other people. Um, so I think mostly it was exciting for that reason that I, I saw this vision that Sandra and Sarah had and I was like, I want to be part of it. And so that was sort of the, the easy part. Um, I think that, and the same thing, because I had worked outside of education before, like it was an easier transition because I sort of had already worked in sort of at the place like the Design Trust in New York was not a startup, but we were a um, like a nonprofit, which is kind of like being a startup, you know, like how can we do as much as possible with as little, like we want, we have a, a real mission-based philosophy like at future design school we're, we're very much driven by our mission and we're all in it because we believe in like what we can do and how we can how we can make change in education so all that just seemed like an easy transition for me mm -hmm. um, it was a little bit hard I think or I can see how it, it could be a little bit daunting for people to leave the structure of a school system um, but because I, like I said earlier, I'm not really a rule follower. I never really kind of fit into the structure of a school system anyways. Like, um, but I think that that, that's probably one of the most challenging things. I think that people who think about leaving the classroom face is like, you go from something where you literally know like what you're doing every day at every like minute of the day, the bell rings at 3:20. you know, what's going to happen next. Um, but to a place where like at, when we started future design school, we were like, we don't even know what we're going to be. <laughs> like, we knew what we wanted to do. We knew what the problem was. We were sort of practicing what we preach in terms of like, we're falling in love with the problem, but we didn't know what the solution was yet. And like that, I, that ambiguity, I think, um, can be a little bit daunting, but I sort of thrive in that kind of environment. So for me, it was just really exciting. The one thing that I did miss and that I do miss the most is the community piece. Like the whole reason, one of the reasons for going into a school was to be part of a community. I definitely like, we have an amazing community at Future Design School, especially as we've grown over the years. Like we have the best team. I will like rave about the team that we have at Future Design School for days. Um, and that's really great, but there's something about a school community that's different, right? Where you've got people of different ages and, um, and like such a big community of people, but at the same time, a close knit community, like there's all kinds of things about a school that's really a unique ecosystem that doesn't necessarily exist outside of a school. So I miss that part. Yeah. And with the startup, I mean, I also am inferring that the pay would be different and the benefits would be different and the kind of like stability would be different than in a traditional school. Yeah. Like the, the stability piece was definitely something when we were first starting out now, like I would say we're kind of like out of like the startup phase. Like we've proved that there is, um, you know, a need for this and that we've got a pretty solid foundation and so now we're at a point in our existence where if someone were to come and join us, that's definitely less of a leap to make than it was when I did four years ago. But, but yeah, it was a bit of a leap of faith at the time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also like, I'm, I don't know. I'm not like a person who's kind of driven by 
things like earning a lot of money and you know if I can live in a convent in Harlem <laughs> making like zero dollars working for a bunch of nuns I, yeah all right so yeah. yeah so explain what you do and I know that every day it's probably going to be a little bit different but you know paint some broad strokes here but like yeah. what is your actual job practice like now at FDS for sure uh, and maybe I'll just start by so like explain a little bit about what FDS is because yeah. our, our name's kind of misleading. People get a little bit confused when we say we're future design school. They always assume that I work in a school right? because um, it's in our name. Um, and that's because originally when, like when I first met um, Sandra and Sarah, the idea was it was going to be a school. Like it was, we're going to start a school and we're going to you know, get all these, you know, the best teachers and the best students and, and we're going to get them all together and we're going to solve real world problems and we're going like, to launch real solutions into the world. And, uh, and then more we went down that path, it was like, well, actually, this might not be the way to have the biggest impact. And so we, what we ended up landing on is how do we help other schools to do sort of school-wide transformation? How do we help schools to become the, the schools the, that the people aspire to? You know, you talk to so many teachers, like when we're at cohort 21, and people have these big visions about what school could be. And so Future Design School really helps schools to identify those visions and then help them make them into a reality. So how do we help you to transform things that are happening in the classroom, things that are happening at the leadership level, and, and what, what, what kind of work your students are doing on a day-to-day -day basis to make it more um, student-directed and personalized and inquiry-driven and connected to the real world and experiential and like all those things that we know a great, uh, a great school can be. Um, and how do we make that accessible to as many kids as possible? Uh, and so that's sort of what our, our real vision is at Future Design School, is helping school leaders and teachers to create that experience, that ideal learning experience that we want for all of our kids. And so we work in a lot of different ways, which means that my day-to-day -day role is like all over the board a lot of the times. So um, we work with, with school leaders at like the like um, decision-making level around like strategic planning and how do we help you to um, create that vision and, and get everyone on board with your mission and how do we help you to operate your school in a way um, that is uh, nimble and responsive and flexible and um, supportive and building your teachers into, into everyone feeling like they have a, a, um, a real stake in the game in terms of transforming the school. Um, and so some days my work is working, like being on a call with a school district leader or being on a call with the head of school or being on a call with, um, or going in person and working with principals, for example, on like re redesigning their school improvement plans, um, which is something we've been doing a lot of lately is, is uh, helping schools to reimagine how do you take a school improvement plan, which is, I think, often seen as like a bureaucratic thing that people have to do. Um, how do you turn that into like a living, breathing thing that can actually be the driving force and the, the vision for what you have in your school? And so some days I'll be working with school leaders like that. Other days I'll be working with teachers. We do a ton of professional development with educators, um, really helping to empower educators to see themselves as experienced designers. Like how do you become that person who's orchestrating these experiences that allow your students to go out and uncover that curriculum? So I spend a lot of time running PD sessions for teachers. Um, that are based sort of around a human-centered design process. Um, but as we've expanded over the years, we've moved away from just doing sort of like design thinking, which is sort of it's definitely the foundation and like the underpinning of all our work is we really believe in this human-centered philosophy. 
um, to now we're like, we have workshops on assessment and project-based learning. And it's really fun because I also get to design those workshops. So I get to think still about like, how do I orchestrate an experience for adult learners mm. so that you can uh, come into this day long session with us and leave with some new ideas and inspiration for how you can change things. That's amazing. Yeah. So what do you think all teachers need to know about design thinking? Like perhaps it's not accessible for everybody to do a workshop with FDS. I mean, ideally every school eventually will be connected with you, but what are some really practical things that any teacher can take into their practice about design thinking? Um, I think one thing is that like, you're probably already doing it. <laughs> I'm just not calling it that. Um, Cause like that was one of the things that I found was a natural fit when I came into education from design was that, design teaching is like is and could I think ideally be a, a really creative profession um, where you're constantly solving problems like I always joke that teachers solve more problems before 10 a.m. on a Monday than like most people do in a week of work which is why I say those other people who sort of you know don't value education as a profession and I don't know if they would survive because we're constantly solving problems and and dealing with so many people and just the complexity of having 20 or 30 individual human beings in your classroom every day you know that requires a massive amount of empathy um, and at the heart of design thinking is, is empathy is really understanding who are the people that I'm working with and what are their needs and how can I help them to to be better how can we create solutions that um, engage them based on what their needs are and what their ex prior experiences are? And so I think we're, a lot of educators are already doing that naturally. You're already thinking about who are my students and what are their needs. And design thinking really just provides um, a framework. And, and I think it's one of those things where like, there's like a lot of like, you can see it as like this like rigid set of steps. And I, and one of the challenges I find with design thinking is I feel like, you know, you can go and like read a book on design thinking that's gonna say, follow these steps. And, um, and, and if you feel like then it's like a set of rules that you need to follow, that's not really like the, the ethos of design thinking. It's more about who are my users, what are their needs and how can I solve this problem? And whether or not you follow the five steps exactly or whether or not you're just, um, you know, uh, most of the time it's a more messy than that. It's like back and forth and there's this and it doesn't always work and there's a lot of ambiguity and you got to test things and things are going to fail. And so I think that the first thing is like, you're probably already doing it. And the second thing is that design thinking can provide a framework to help you do it better or to remind you. It's almost like a reminder of like, oh yeah, I need to think about who my students' needs are. Oh, oh yeah, it's okay if I fail. Um, and, and failure is part of the process. Um, so, and then I think in terms of like actually employing it in your classroom as, as a teacher, if you want your students to do it, um, which is what I, like we sort of, when we teach design thinking at FDS, we kind of do it in a lot of different ways. We work with school leaders to help them to say like, who are the users in your school and what are their needs? And, um, and we actually do like a whole program called a future skills index where we go in and do that user discovery work where we like interview your teachers and interview your students and find out what their needs actually are. Cool. Um, which is one thing I would say to every teacher is interview your students, like yeah. go and talk to them and ask them like, what do you think about this learning experience? We, we sort of like don't often let kids like peek behind the curtain and see like yeah. why we're doing things the way that we are. But if you just start asking them like, they'll tell you so much and you'll learn so much more about how to engage them just by talking to them. So that would be like another thing I would say is just go and talk to your users um, mm -hmm. and, and show them what you're doing. Like I would pull the curriculum out and show my students like 
this is the curriculum. Like, I'm not making this up. <laughs> and, and oftentimes it was because it, because a lot of my stuff was like very personalized and student directed. There'd be a couple of kids at the end of the year who hadn't covered some curriculum expectations. So it'd be like, here's your curriculum. Like you got to figure out how we're going to learn these things. <laughs> Engage the students in the design of the learning process, I think. Mm is another thing like don't see it as something that you have to do but like how do you engage them more in that process of like all right guys we want to learn about this how are we going to do it you know um so that would be another thing oh yeah i was going to say something about engaging the kids in the process in the classroom um so the other way that we work with schools is um helping teachers to use design thinking with students and I think that kids also naturally gravitate towards this process because kids are naturally curious and they want to ask questions and just giving them the space to do that and then figuring out how your curriculum is going to fit into their ideas, I think can be really powerful. Like letting them take the lead a little bit and say, all right, there's this thing happening in our school community. Like, why is it happening? Let's start asking some questions and then give them the framework of like, you know, here's a quick tool for how you can come up with ideas for how to solve a problem. Um, and sometimes those tools and structures are really what make it valuable. What I found is the more I structured the process with my students, the better they got at coming up with ideas. We have this like false idea that creativity comes from absolute freedom, right? Like if I just let my students you know, do whatever they want. How am I ever going to cover the curriculum? But I think actually creativity comes from constraint. Or if you say to your students, like, we can explore these ideas, but we also have to do these things. Or like, I want you to come up with ideas and I'm going to give you a structure for how to come up with ideas instead of just go come up with ideas. It becomes a lot easier for them. So. And somewhat comforting too, I imagine. Yeah. It's like, okay, got it. Here are where the walls are. This is, this yeah. is where I can play. Yeah. And like, I know like when I first started doing design th thinking with my students, I thought that they'd be better off with like, you, you can do anything you want, like come up with any idea you want. And kids look at you like deer in the headlights, right? They're like, <laughs> I don't have any ideas. And that creative confidence and building that creative confidence is so important to show them that they do have ideas. So doing something like a crazy eights brainstorm where you have 40 seconds per box and you've got eight empty boxes and you have to draw one idea in each box. It gives them a structure and there's something about the psychology of like the fear of an empty box is outweighs the fear of putting down a bad idea. So they'll put down ideas that they're not quite sure about. But then at the end, when they reflect back on it, it's like, wow, I have eight ideas and like here they are and they're on paper and now I can talk about them. And that's so powerful as opposed to like putting kids in a group and saying, brainstorm and like one of them opens a Google doc and starts to write down ideas and one student writes down six ideas another student has six ideas but is afraid to say them and another student feels like they don't have any ideas at all you know so that that individualization of like the ideation process and that structure that you can provide I think can be really powerful for kids creative confidence and really freeing too like when I've done crazy eights with you too I remember sometimes you've said for like one of those 40 second little sketches now make a bad idea like actually <laughs> right now you're going to make the worst possible idea you can. And when I've done that with my own students, we've gone back and looked at it and actually out of their bad idea, not so far away from it, like just adjacent to their bad idea is an amazing idea yes. often. Yeah. When you actually give young people or yourselves permission to just like say the worst possible solution to this problem, you realize that it's not as scary, I think, as you think it is in your head. Totally. Mm -hmm. I had this experience where that exact thing happened. I had a student who couldn't think of ideas and was starting to panic. Like there is like, it's a bit anxiety inducing, right? Is, you sure. know, you 
have this fear of like, I don't know what to put down. And, and I just said, what's, we were doing a project around playground design. There was a park across the street from our school that we were looking at redesigning. And this student was totally stuck. And I said, well, what's the worst idea you can think of? And he's like, I don't know, a playground full of knives. And I was like, put it down. <laughs> that was funny, right? So he's like, oh, he starts drawing knives on the page. Um, and it was a funny thing, but also like that laughter of like, like it kind of broke the anxiety a little bit because he thought it was funny. And then from there, he started to think about safety. Like you're saying, like the adjacent idea to a playground full of knives is like, how do we make a playground safe? And so that, or how do we, how unsafe can a playground get before it's too risky? Like if it's an adventure playground, like they do these really cool things where it's like, yeah, like shovels and (laughs) piles of dirt and like big planks of wood and like kids are like constructing things. And like, you could look at it and be like, whoa, how are they not beating each other with these shovels? But they're, (laughs) they're not. And you're like, how risky can we get before it gets? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I also just love hearing in the way that you're talking about, student empowerment, it completely draws me back to the reality that you have a background in human rights. And hearing the way that you talk about young people, it's as if you're honoring their inherent rights as learners and their inherent human rights in the classroom. Like thinking about the right of just listening to them and interviewing them and asking, how is this working for you? I don't know if you've ever like saw those as like parallels, but for me, it's just so obvious that that background and thinking about human rights is so present in what you're doing now. I hadn't really thought about it in that way. I made the connection before around like empowering kids to be active citizens. Like one of the things that I was really passionate about as a teacher was like giving kids a voice in the community and and helping them to see that like, if there's something wrong, that's the other thing about design thinking is like, instead of saying like, there's a problem, let's complain about it. It's like, there's a problem, let's go fix it. Mm-hmm. And And I think that there's something really empowering about that, but I hadn't really made that other connection. So Yeah, just (laughs) makes you even cooler in my head. Now that you're, like, I kind of imagine that you're seeing education from more of a bird's eye perspective. Like you're looking at big systems of things, you're talking to heads of school, you're looking at, you know, you're coming into a school community and then you're leaving. So you're seeing a lot broader of a scope. What do you see or understand about education now that you didn't get when you were just in one class or one school? Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question too because I I think that there's there's a lot I kind of I kind of make like a parallel to um, it's like it's like coaching a sport versus playing a sport right like I played volleyball my whole like life growing up um, as a kid and I was always like technically good like I knew how to block and I knew how to hit and I was tall and I could jump like there was like a lot of things that I had going for me that made me a relatively decent volleyball player but I was never really good because I didn't have court vision. Like I couldn't understand that like when there was a hit going up on that side of the court, I need to back off the net to cover the blockers. Like that kind of stuff. I always just really struggled with seeing the bigger picture as a, as a player. And then when I started teaching, I started coaching volleyball and suddenly it all made sense. I was like, well, obviously if there's a hit right there, like that kid needs to back up and cover the blockers. And I was always yelling at the players, you know, like cover your blockers. Um, But I just couldn't see it when I was in it and as a player. And I feel like it's kind of the same thing now. Like I, after spending years in a classroom um, and then now stepping away and being able to see that bigger picture, um, it, it becomes sort of obvious uh, but at the same time, there's all these like fascinating things, um, that, that we've learned through this process. And I think that, um, in terms of like big picture things, I've, I really value, become, come to value like good leadership 
and how much that can really impact uh, the school culture. Um, everything from like how parents are engaged to how kids are engaged, to how teachers feel. And like, if you have good leadership that is able to, to set a vision and then get everyone in line with that vision and then also execute against that vision is like such a rare thing to find. Um, but there's people who, who are doing it really, really well in a lot of places and they're able to create whole school change and like transform communities because of it. Um, and then other times it's like, if one of those pieces are missing, like if you have a great vision, but you can't communicate it to, to your stakeholders, then like if things start to fall apart or if you have a great vision and you communi can communicate it, but then you can't actually execute against it for whatever reasons, whether it's like budgetary reasons or whether it's just inability to get people on board with that vision or, you know, like there's so many reasons why that vision could fall apart. Um, and then there's other times where there's like a place that's devoid of vision, where there's not someone who's sort of setting the, the path and saying like, this is what we're all marching towards and like, this is why. And I think that why is really important when it comes to, to setting your school vision and to helping um, get people on board with it. So I think that's the one thing that I've learned is like how important leadership is um, and also how important it is for for everyone in the school community to be okay with change and mm. to say yes to trying new things and to not get too mired in the like, but this is how we do things. <laughs> and, and that can be really hard, I think, especially for uh, institutions like schools that have so much legacy and so much um, like you were saying, you know, your own, you draw on your own educational experiences. And I think a lot of times reluctance towards change isn't necessarily because someone just is being stubborn and doesn't want to change, but there's a bit of a fear of, of the unknown or a bit of a fear of making mistakes, um, that I think is really challenging. And so, uh, yeah, change is, is hard, but it's not, and what's there's a quote from someone else it's like change is not hard it's just uncomfortable hmm. i wrote a blog post about, about i can't remember who, who that quote is from i feel like it's probably like a seth godin or something but <laughs> it's like change isn't hard it's just uncomfortable and i think as teachers we take our we take such personal responsibility for our students learning um that when someone comes in and says hey you should try to change what you're doing in your classroom hmm. it can be really scary because there's implied in that is a bit of a sense of like what you were doing before wasn't right. Um, which is not the case. Like what you were doing before was probably great. And one of the things that we always say at Future Design School is like, we, we come in and we honor what teachers are already doing. Like you care so much and you're already doing great things in your classroom. This is not about throwing at the baby with the bathwater, but rather saying yes. And, and like, yeah. yes, you're doing great things. And like, let's take it a step further. Let's try something new. Let's do this differently. And it's not saying that what you're doing before was wrong. It's just, let's just try something different and see how that works. So that was kind of a rambly answer. <laughs> so it's perfect. So in that spirit of trying something new, we're going to do a ticket out the door to close off our conversation, which is, you know, that comes from that idea of you're about to leave. Things are about to transition. I want every last drop of learning possible from you, Les Macbeth. So it's just random rapid fire questions. Um, are you ready? I'm terrified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't get too personal here, but you can, you can answer it however you want. What is your favorite movie? Oh man, that's like the toughest question you could ask me. <laughs> I'm so the first bad one. with movies. 
my husband says that I watch movies and I'm like so engaged in the moment. Like he likes watching me watch movies because I'm like into it. And then it immediately after it ends, I forget the entire thing and I have no idea what happened. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So, so I don't have favorite. favorite. <laughs> what is the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Uh, brush my teeth. <laughs> what is the last thing you do before going to bed at night? Say goodnight to my husband. If I'm at home, if I'm in a hotel room, it's probably different. <laughs> What is your favorite airport? Ooh, that's a good one. There's a lot of good ones out there, but I feel like the Toronto Pearson is actually pretty great. There's a lot of natural light in Toronto Pearson, which is really nice, but they don't have the best food. Um, I was recently in the airport in, uh, it's called the Arlanda airport in Stockholm. Um, and it was quite nice. The Iceland airport in Reykjavik. I've spent a lot of time there recently pretty good. There's a lot of good airports out there, but Toronto Pearson is, anyone who complains about Toronto Pearson um, shouldn't complain. I can tell you my least favorite airport is. Go for it. LaGuardia Airport (laughs) is the worst airport. It's the worst. Don't ever go there. (laughs) French fries or nachos? French fries under the bridge. It's a Point Edward thing. If anyone out there is from Point Edward, you know, you get fries under the bridge. It sounds weird, but. Sounds like a Red Hot Chili Pepper song. Beer or cider? Beer. Summer or winter? Summer. Would you rather be able to fly or be invisible? Invisible. Mm. Who is your favorite edu celebrity? Oh, so many good ones out there. I think he's not really an edu celebrity, but like David Kelly is like kind of my guru when it comes to like how to think about school differently. So what are three things you love most about yourself? Um, I feel like I'm very resourceful and resilient and not afraid of new things. And I like to be active. <laughs> Finally, what do you think is the future of learning? Uh, I think the future of learning is um, getting going back to like natural curiosity and uh, getting kids outside the classrooms and and making schools more connected and more engaged in the community um, and less of like this like box of a place where you have to go and do certain things. Les Macbeth, my adoration for you has deepened. I didn't think it was possible, but there you have it. An hour's more spent with you and I'm like even more obsessed with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me be part of it. And I'm humbled to be amongst this group of educators that you've been able to interview over the past year and a half. You've got such like an amazing repertoire of knowledge on the podcast now and I think it's such a great resource for for educators out there to just key into all kinds of different ideas and hear all kinds of different inspiring voices so thank you oh thank you for joining the party it's so good to have you (laughs) if you are as obsessed and inspired by design thinking and Les Macbeth as I am in the show notes you can find links to how to connect with Les on the socials as well as how to find out more about future design school and the incredible work that they do If you haven't done so already, please take a few moments to leave a review of the show on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It takes about 30 seconds of your day, and it means that more educators like you can find the show. Speaking of finding the show, you can find me on Instagram as teaching underscore tomorrow and on Twitter as teach underscore tomorrow. Leave a message about what content you would like to see in the future or what has resonated with you so far. Take your headphones off and come chat. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep falling in love with the problem. And remember, we are teaching tomorrow.